Salutations from space, and welcome to the Storytelling Podcast with your host and celestial navigator, Gemini Brett of More Than Astrology. This show honors the ancient tradition of verbal transmission, so each episode will begin with a new telling of an old myth or legend. We will then seek to unveil hidden gems of cosmological, philosophical, astronomical, psychological, astrological, and mystical wisdom woven into the web of these starry stories. We will feature original music and guests from all walks of the way. We are gathered here today to celebrate the marriage of heaven and earth, the as above to the so below, the as without to the so within. Let us begin. We are go for lunch. In the beginning, in the very beginning, before the beginning, there was naught but chaos, the void, endless, wasteful, wild, like the sea, the formless form of the formed formless. Nikes, which we call night, was the firstborn. Then Erebus, death, which after some other offspring finally gave rise miraculously to love and to light. And from these was born the first incarnate, Gaia, who was Earth. And Gaia, who longed to be held, created the heavens to embrace her. This was Oranos. This marriage of heaven and earth. And these two also gave birth. First to the hundred-handed ones, these mysterious monsters with 50 heads and a hundred arms apiece. And also to the Cyclopes. These with only one head, like ours, but also with only one eye. Ernest did not smile upon the monstrosity of his offspring. He banished them to Tartarus, the lowest place of Hades. 
It is said we could drop a 50-pound anvil from this world and it would take nine days and nine nights to fall to this low and darkest place of hell. Gaia did not smile upon the banishing of her children. She began to refuse Uranus, and he began to take her, seeding another race, a race of titans, giants, who, like their older siblings, were locked away. But these, not in Tartarus, instead in the cage that was their mother's womb. For Uranus would not allow Gaia to give birth to these children. She conspired with the unborn to take the power from their father. She had previously spoken to Uranus a prophecy that one of these children would take the kingdom from him. And this, perhaps, is why they were trapped in the first place. And there within the cage of mother's womb, only the youngest was courageous enough to answer her call. This was Kronos, Saturn, who, as I like to tell it, with a little itty-bitty baby-sized sickle, castrated his father, Uranus, during the next rape. The phallus fell from the heavens, From the blood that struck the earth, the Furies were born. The phallus itself fell to the seas near the island of Cyprus. And from this merger, this strange union of heaven and earth, was born Aphrodite. Venus, goddess of love, who in her beauty rode from those seas on a clamshell, having castrated his father, as was prophesied, Kronos did indeed take the kingdom from Uranus, and for a time he ruled over a golden age on earth.
king of kings, Kronos, ruled over a golden age. His sister, Rhea, was queen. But his mother, Gaia, spoke to him a prophecy. Kronos, one day a child of yours will take your kingdom from you. He did not trap his children in mother's womb as his father Uranus had done. He had seen what could become of this strategy. Instead, Kronos allowed Rhea to deliver, but as soon as she did, he demanded she deliver the babies to him, and he ate them, consumed them, trapping the potential usurpers in his own stomach where he could keep close watch over them. Five babies were born. Five babies were eaten. These were Hestia, Hades, Demeter, Poseidon, and Hera. Then a sixth was born, a very special young lad by the name of Zeus. His mother Rhea could not bear the thought of delivering another child to the father to be consumed. So she delivered this baby Zeus in private at the top of a mountain and played a trick on Kronos. She got him drunk on wine. Apparently this was not too difficult to do. She swaddled a stone in baby's clothing and gave this to the father, who consumed it, believing for a time that this stone was his newborn son. With Zeus, Rhea gave to Gaia, who hid him away in one of her caves on Mount Ida, where he was raised by wood nymphs and fed the milk of a goat named Amalthea. Under this protection of nature, Zeus grew to be a strong man. And when he was grown, a titaness named Metis taught him to create a poison composed of salt and mustard, which his mother Rhea slipped into her husband Kronos's wine. It forced him to vomit up Zeus's siblings. And that stone, which still exists today in Delphi and is anointed every day there, with sacred oils and prayer by priests and priestesses. The siblings, having been vomited forth, now joined Zeus's side in a battle that would become a 10 years war. The Titan force was led by Atlas, Apparently, Kronos, father of time, had grown 
a little long in tooth to lead his own troops. This war waged on and on. The tides shifted significantly when a titan of great prophetic gifts, Prometheus, switched sides. For Prometheus had foreseen that Zeus and his siblings, those who would become the Olympian gods and goddesses, would win this war they had waged against Kronos and the Titans. Prometheus convinced Zeus to free his uncles, the hundred-handed ones and the Cyclops from Tartarus. And they fashioned for Zeus and his brothers great weapons. Zeus was given his thunderbolt, Hades, his helm of invisibility, and Poseidon, his trident. And with the strength of the uncles at their side, and with these great weapons of war, indeed, those who would become the Olympians overcame the Titans. Kronos was cast away. Many of the Titans were sent to Tartarus. Others were punished in more severe ways. Atlas himself was forced to carry the heavens and separate them from earth, holding that weight on his shoulders for eternity. But Prometheus and others like his brother Epimetheus, who had crossed sides, were given a place in the hallowed halls of Mount Olympus. Zeus, Hades, Poseidon drew straws to see who would become king of kings. Zeus drew the longest, became king of Olympus, of the heavens. Poseidon was given rulership over the seas and Hades over the underworld below. Now Zeus, having become king of kings, honored his nursemaid, the goat, Amalthea, by giving her a place forever in the heavens as the constellation Capricornus. Salutations from space and aloha from Earth. This is Gemini Brett, celestial navigator of this storytelling podcast. Today is Tuesday, Mars's day, June 14th, 2016. And I hit record at 2.03 p.m. in West Seattle's Lincoln Park. Today we'll talk a bit about Mars, we'll talk a bit about war, and we'll talk about peace. Libra is rising now, 
with the moon soon to rise at this time in a beautiful, harmonious trine to the Gemini sun. And in the sign of Venus, also trining the goddess who is currently engaged in a long underworld process. We'll be speaking about the underworld for sure. I'm standing at my east altar in Lincoln Park, my home away from home. And I don't have anything at this altar. Really, this altar has me. And it's a patch of, of trillium in the moss, in the ferns. The trillium flowers have come and gone. They are short-lived, but the beautiful three-petaled plants remain a symbol of spring. And as we are now mutating into summer, summer solstice comes earlier than it typically does in the Gregorian calendar this year due to the strange effects of leap years and whatnot will be June 20th, a week from yesterday. War and peace, the underworld, the heavenly realms, and how all of that breathes into our spirit here in the middle world here in the earth game. And we'll walk now towards the southern altar, head more towards the bird sounds and away from the cars. So here in the east of the park, it's a pretty busy road, especially at certain hours because that road, Fauntleroy, leads to the Fauntleroy Ferry, which takes folks to Vashon Island. And I'm thinking about this as well, about technology and nature and those aspects of ourselves. So here I am walking around in the park, talking to you someplace in time in the future through this digital recording device and eventually the internet and SoundCloud or iTunes or whatever it may be. Here people are in these cars driving to a diesel-powered ferry boat to take them to a very natural island. Just walking in, sending a text message before I turned my phone off for this episode and instead of typing as I was walking I did that whole push a button and talk into my phone and have it type for me you know and I wrote something to a friend in Portland about possibly doing a solstice sunset gathering there next week and I said Portland and the phone wrote Orlando and though I sometimes mumble I don't really feel those two words sound alike you get that orbit and at this time of recording, Orlando is on the collective mind after this terrible incident that happened there during the first quarter moon. Moon at the North Node and Jupiter and Virgo. Saturday night, this terrible shooting, killing 50 people, 
and injuring that many and more. So this idea of peace and war takes us also into the current threads of terrorism and police state and well it takes us courage to go into these places and I pray that I may have that courage to speak uninhibitedly from my heart and will and that you may hear these words from those same centers of your own presence. Last week I recorded a podcast called The Pillars of Truth, and in some ways that's a prequel to this series. I mean this series because this greatest story, I feel, of the myth, especially in relation to the unfolding times, the prophecy of Prometheus will come in several chapters. Been on my list for a while. You heard David Hoover playing flute and drum there in the first portion of the storytelling. (laughs) Speaking of tech and nature, you don't often see cars driving through these forest paths, but that just happened. Um, So all the love to David Hoover, an amazing man who's certainly going through his own trials right now. Um, And you'll hear David playing many instruments as we move along through these chapters. We recorded the storytelling way back in September 30th, 2015, um, at the river at Portland's Wonderland. September 30th has become a pretty signature date in our community and Wonderland especially. So this has been on the list again for some time, but I've been waiting for, I guess, the catalyst to come through to start this reaction. In the Pillars of Truth, this last podcast, I challenged myself and hopefully the listener to have a look at my own inner 9-11 I mean this hermetically speaking. I mean this to say in accordance with this idea of as above, so below, and as within, so without, that many would suggest the conflicts of the outer world are merely reflections of our inner conflict. I read a post this morning from Goenke, the bringer of the Vipassana tradition, silent meditation in a specific way that I can't speak much about because I have not had the courage to embark on that journey yet in my life. And he said something very similar to what I feel to be the truth, that there will not be peace in the world until there is peace in each and every one of us. And that the greatest contribution that we can give to the world in this regard is to find that inner peace. 
And so I often say this with the fixed sign archetypes, fix yourself to fix the world. A quote I took from a fellow Romecaster, Neil Kramer, really wonderful modern philosopher, and one who has the courage to address some pretty strong and challenging themes of our world that we are manifesting now. And so this challenge would be to say that we indeed have manifested these things like Orlando, like 9-11. And so when I say, what is your inner 9-11? I ask you to contemplate if this is true as within, so without. What is it in you what disturbance in the field and as that event was so shady scandalous and what we're told about it certainly untrue though I'm not here to tell you what the truth was for I don't know though I have entertained many options the idea is that there's something like that in me something like that in you and our fear of addressing that that dark truth which outer manifestations like the Patriot Act and the NDAA if you follow these things that are stripping you of your liberties are also reflections of this unjust law that we've written within to keep us from seeing this hard truth this inner conflict because that perhaps is the most difficult thing to do. So I spoke in this Pillars of Truth episode last about this 9-11 and find your inner 9-11. Courageously go into that place because if you find that wound within and bring healing to it, you will heal the wound without. I've been speaking about that as a theme for some years now. What is your inner Fukushima? We could say as well. Who is your inner Trump and Hillary? Clearly that statement dates this time as much as the calendar date I gave at the beginning. What is the source of disruption within? And if we avoid looking, which everything in our culture would train us to do, then we project that out, right? That's the shadow projection. So we think of shadow as like this dark and scary Scooby-Doo fear zone, right? And that's not necessarily the idea of shadow. In fact, in the shadow is all this beautiful light that we also hide from. Why? Is it a source of our power? Is this why our cultural conditioning asks us to keep it suppressed? And that's what this series of podcasts, The Prophecy of Prometheus, 
intends to address for change is on the winds and as I like to say choose change before change chooses you if we only project our shadow out into the world typically it will manifest into frightening monsters here to snarl in our faces as a reminder that this too is us I had the great opportunity to interview a man called Paul Levy some time ago for my 13th flower project about dispelling Watiko this idea that this chaos in the world is a projection of our inner chaos and what is the gift in that curse but to be a source of our awakening so 9-11 as an example we'll return to a terrible thing a terrible event there's not a word big enough for it because our world has changed drastically since that day perhaps more quickly than through any technological advancement through any spiritual breakthrough and I'm talking about day-to-day life and if that's not something we're willing to face we certainly are not aren't going to be able to get to the deeper contemplations within that chaos But the thing about that crazy dark happening, as it always is with the darkness and destruction, it pairs with light and creation. And there are many, many folks I know who, like myself, either at the time of that happening or much later, as it was for me, entered that dark rabbit hole to find shiny gems that that nightmare itself helped to awaken us from a false reality does that mean we found the truth well that's like a lifelong quest is it not but we've decided to stop paying attention to the false dream that was promoted to us and my sense is that if you're listening to this whether it was that particular global happening or not that you've also been through this type of awakening in one way or another now when we are shaken out of a dream a dream we were told since day one was real it could be a very painful thing betrayal deceit and these 
kinds of themes come to mind. And there's a big wind blowing in the forest, as I imagine you can hear. Hopefully that won't make this episode unlistenable. <laughs> but rather to bring a little more tension from the winds of the world that blow so strongly at this time. But these same winds can fill our sails. Attachment to the dream is the mother of disappointment. <laughs> this is delusion. And so through this type of awakening and that pain, well, we might decide to stop dreaming. And hopefully only for a short time. Because it is not the dream, it is the attachment to it that is the mother of disappointment. The dream itself, I might say, is the mother of hope. How can we allow ourselves to dream of a better way, to literally dream it into our manifest reality, individually, collectively? Well, perhaps one of the first conditions is that we must not be attached to it. For if we have such a concrete idea of what this better humanity looks like, what this dream is, and how exactly we will manifest it into the world, the limitations we set might be too strict for the better way to show itself. How can we be liberal with the intentions of this better way and not attached to how it comes through so that we can allow it to, perhaps in a way that's even more glorious than anything we could imagine. In fact, I would have to say it it's, it has to be that way. And so the trick for the light worker who's truly devoted is to be a shadow worker. For the two are one and the same. The traditions that would have us only looking to the light, only looking to the avatar of beauty while denying anything dark will split us into a way where we have lost touch with ourselves. If only we honor creation, certainly the universe would overpopulate within a breath's time. If only we honor the light, we will never see it in its true glory. It's like a commitment to see only 
what lives in the shallows of the waters where light strikes and life comes forth. Too much fear to dive deeper. with headlamps there's a light in the darkness and there's a darkness in the light and while statements like this might sound as if they are the very source of trapping ourselves within duality consciousness duality to again find ourselves return to source and peace which is unity I find myself more and more in disagreement speak about gender often astrologically in my talks, you know, the earth and the water signs as the yin and the chalice and the feminine, the air and the fire as the yang and the blade and the masculine, and some people get very upset. That gender duality is a source of so much destruction, and of course this Orlando happening is reminding us of that. And yet, the masculine and the feminine principles, and at least in this state of human being, the male and female biologies are necessary for our propagation as a species. And I would say this is true without and within. And I've spoken at length about transcending duality not through pretending it does not exist but through instead diving deep into its contemplations experiences joys and pains to find that in polarity there is syzygy that through the studies of independence dependence codependence and such we will find interdependence just as we need positive and negative charge to create power from this strange thing called energy. I've been challenged in these last few days by a few dear friends to speak about this recent happening in regards to this last podcast, The Pillars of Truth, I recorded because one of the things I said there is that as we are at this time now, which is the Saturn opposition 
to 9-11, meaning that Saturn is now at the opposite side of the zodiac, or therefore halfway to the Saturn return. And I call that the time of illumination to some of the seeds planted at that time. And the challenge is, hey, you really missed the boat on that one, dude. For here we are, hundreds of people shot for expressing themselves in a club by a fundamentalist terrorist, the way it reads. How's that illumination? How's that flowering, as I call it in the game of the phases and aspects, astrologically speaking? When our inner darkness is illuminated, is it easy? In this world, for us to address our fears, do we just gladly do so courageously? To slow our breath and soften our gaze and go within to study this darkness of inner place? for us in the worlds within and without. More and more we should hope so, but typically as it is in the Earth game, it is the chaotic outer happening that smacks us in the face and reminds us to take a deep look. The broken heart breaks the heart open when it before resisted. Doesn't feel good. Serves these things that happen to us we find usually much later through time spent grieving and releasing happen not to us but for us and as we move through these episodes and address the gift of Chiron to Prometheus as a statement of the inner awakening and the promise I pray of an outer revelation and revolution Hopefully I'll find myself addressing some of the strategies that I have been taught. Hey, pup. And the young Aussie Shepherd bouncing around, breaking the rules on the beach with a bright, smiling eye to remind us even when these words are heavy and even when the winds blow 
this earth, which is a master class and a challenging university, is also a game. Perhaps brave words given the current topic and climate. The Negredo, the Albedo, the Rubedo. Three phases of the alchemical awakening that I first heard from Gary Caton, who speaks brilliantly about things like this on his Hermetic Astrology podcast that I often encourage folks to have it go with. The blackening, the darkening, the taking us into the dark night of the soul. But why? To find the brighter light. The albedo, the whitening. And it is said, I am told in this tradition that a important phrase was for when the matter becomes blackened, rejoice. Rejoice, for now you know you are on your path to purification. In the darkest night, the light that illuminates is brighter than it is by day. And when we find that new light and bring it back to our awareness, we are challenged to now engage with the rubedo, the reddening, the practice, the devotion to tending these flames that we've learned to create so that we do not fall back into the old darkness of night that had to get darker so that we could find the light. And those who claim to be awakened have made a verbal contract not to awaken further. And as it is, and we all know as we slowly climb the rungs of this strange ladder, a new dark experience might come around to help us find a brighter light and on and on and on, but it does not have to be this way. And part of our collective conditioning that evolution equals Darwinistic natural selection is a great disservice to the truth that we can also evolve through bliss and through joy. If we choose to engage just as intently in times of joy as we are so forced to in times of grief. And perhaps I should not say forced to because it is often the case that we will run, run, run away and choose instead to stay asleep. Like Cypher in the Matrix who begged eat that pill that would keep him alive in a false dream, though he knew he would not be alive in that regard. It's easier. 
does illumination mean this warm embrace comes from the heavens to end everything in a moment? That'd be a less interesting world, wouldn't it? That'd be a less interesting game, wouldn't it? That's not the one I think we came to play. Perhaps you, not I. Not at this time. Though I'm open to it. And so I talked about the Saturn opposition of 9-11. I'm going to say too, if you're new to astrology, you probably at least have heard the Saturn return language come around to you. Well, Saturn takes 29 and a half years to spin through all 12 signs of the zodiac, through all 360 degrees of the wheel, and return to where Saturn was at the time of your birth. So Saturn return, Saturn returning to where it was, comes around 29 and a half years old. Depending where you were in Saturn's dance, maybe 29, maybe 30, typically about a nine-month window within that range. And halfway there is 14 to 15 years old, which finds Saturn on the opposite side of the zodiac from where Saturn was when you were born. Saturn opposition. And before Saturn finds opposition around seven years old, he makes square. Saturn square. Saturn, Saturn, 90 degrees from where the ringed one lived on the song of your soul, your birth chart. After Saturn opposition, 180 degrees across the chart, about seven years later, seven and a quarter really, 21, 22 years old, Saturn squaring your natal Saturn from the other side. And so last podcast, The Pillars of Truth, I spoke a bunch about the moon game. Hello, crow. About planting seeds at the time of the new moon or the conjunction. About those seeds sprouting at the time of the first quarter or the square about those seeds flowering and the illumination coming in at the time of the opposition, about those seeds fruiting and wisdom coming our way at the time of the third quarter square. So as it is with Saturn, the conjunction is when you're born. The next one's at Saturn return. The first square is when you're seven years old, the opposition 1415, the third quarter square, 2122. So in regards to Saturn, which is the wisdom, but the wisdom earned, the breakthrough, but the breakthrough from the obstacles, which certainly it as well is often presented through the authority figures, father, mother, teacher, preacher, guru, what have you. this period of planting, sprouting, flowering, fruiting takes 30 years, with those stages coming around the time of the magical seven, seven, 14, 21, 28, really it's seven and a quarter. 
so seven and a quarter, 14, 15, 14 and a half really. 21, 22, 29, 30. When the cycle is complete and we drop those seeds to plant them anew and begin again, hopefully in a higher way. And as I spoke in the story, Saturn once ruled over a golden age. So why is he seen only as this father castrating, baby-eating, sickle-toting grim reaper? This is malefic in astrological traditions. And who is it that took his throne but his son Jupiter? And seeing the participation of Jupiter and Saturn on your soul's song for expansion awareness spiritual openings to assist in this breakthrough that helps you find freedom from the cage which I find is actually found when we realize it was never locked in the first place, for these things were not done to us, but for us. And it's a lifelong process. Often, we don't necessarily connect to our Jupiter play until we do our Saturn work. More challenging for some, less challenging for others. All shown in the chart. And so I spoke about how this time now, as this Saturn opposition to 9-11 brings us into the time of illumination. And Saturn is now in this opposition to where Saturn was at 9-11 and conjunct, by the way, where Pluto was at the time of 9-11. It's currently retrograde. Saturn station retrograde on... March 25th, 2016, and we'll stay in that backward moonwalk through the sky until August 13th. We're looking back. We're looking within. Are we willing to see our own inner 9-11s, though perhaps that darkness was first stashed away at a very, very early age, perhaps in this lifetime, perhaps in the lifetime of the soul. So that word most likely does not really apply. Who's to say which does? And so, illumination. So when I speak about the moon game, I often will say, the seeds of intentions planted. And I share in the last episode that with Venus at the Gemini new moon on June 4th, one of the seeds I was planting was for more playful love. And that at the time of the first quarter, an intention comes around this beginning with last week's first quarter moon, at least in the moon game, the seeds sprout and sometimes tensions come in where we don't even see how they apply to the intention set. Certainly, Orlando was a huge statement 
in resistance to playful love, no? And when the full moon comes around next week and the time of illumination shows up, perhaps I will see my own path why some of the challenges I personally was experiencing on that same night as this terror in Orlando actually applied to the intentions I set. And though I see some of that now, it doesn't quite compute. That's the idea of the full moon. But it engages us in the beginning in the moon game I play of a week of this type of mindfulness that is the very thing that brings wisdom. And so Saturn, in this period of illumination, to where Saturn was at the time of 9-11, which was in Gemini, seeking wisdom of intellectual truth, (laughs) playful youth, and so much more, and also perhaps the wisdom found through the exploration of duality, we are just engaging with a seven-year potential, perhaps those strongest in the first couple, of this illumination to how the authority figures were caging that quest. And so I often compare this to something I see again and again in giving astrological consultation, that when a human has decided to walk away from some church or religion, for example, that they were indoctrinated into, not by choice, but because they were in a family whose religious inclinations brought them there at a very young age, that it's the Saturn opposition very commonly when a 14, 15 year old realizes the church is not for them. And oftentimes the Saturn square 21, 22 is the time that they decide to split. Sometimes earlier. Oftentimes it's kind of the other way. Parents are super agnostic, atheist, in the science world, whatever. God is dead. A human is here to really explore spirituality and perhaps even religion. And that does show up in plenty of soul songs. 14, 15 is that time where they're like, hey mom, my friends are going to this Christian camp and I want to. What? Those people? Please. You know. So I spoke last time about illuminating the church of fear. Awakening to this potential to see that we were unwillingly indoctrinated into this religion that's not for us. They're all out to get you. The jihadists will kill us all if we are not in a constant state of war. This is war for peace. That was not our mindset. 17 years ago. It just wasn't. That's not to say there hadn't been terrorist attacks, but the war on terror had not begun.
What is missing that would bring an antidote to this craziness? And so this series of podcasts will be challenging in this regard. I think this is why it's taken me a while to hit record. But we are in these times where speak truth while you can so that we can continually. For even the words I'm speaking now literally could get me on the very naughty list that could end up sending me to Gitmo legally. Just think about that. I'm not saying it's going to happen. In fact, it's not. I'm a sovereign being. But just think about that. Without saying a word to my mom. Gone, like a thief in the night. Who knows where, never to be heard from again. And it's illegal for them to do this. But here's the trick. Them is us. The 99% is the 1%. For we are one. This thing happened in Orlando, I told a couple of people about it, and they said, oh, it must be a Trump supporter. So look at that little shift that's come in in very recent times. Somebody kills and shoots, injures hundreds of people in a club because of their sexual inclinations and their pride in expressing themselves the way that they should. And now, the first reaction isn't, oh, that must be this terrorist, this jihadist, this fundamentalist. It's a different kind of fundamentalist. It's a Trumpist. And that man's reactions to the whole thing and turning it to be something about himself is just poppycock. <laughs> There's a fun word. Um, so, you know, <laughs> we could explore this all day, and I think we should on our own time. I would like to bring this back to the myth, to the story, to the starry, to the astrology. A little bit spe less specific about right now than about the whole thing. But one last thing I will say is that this man did not declare himself to be some disciple of Trump, but affiliated with ISIS. And this is, I believe, the strangest piece of the puzzle. The one that fit, fits least. For when we say that word ISIS now, to the public, the typical understanding of what is heard is fundamentalist terrorist out to destroy, you know, the heathen Christians, whatever. The infidels. Isis was the name of the mother of heaven, of the great goddess, the consort to Osiris, the queen, the civilizer who brought to us a peaceful expression of what it means to be a human being. Do you think the folks who named this group overseas 
and very likely as it is unfortunately trained this group as well supplies their arms and again them is us it's an interesting contemplation available to us there do you think they're not aware of who the true Isis was of what that name means is this not psychological warfare intentionally and I will claim again and again as I often do that those who have not heard of the great virgin mother the great queen of heaven Isis by that name are even more affected by having her great name desecrated in this terrible way by folks who I would suggest are very intent on doing so for this very purpose that it attacks the depths of the souls It's basically like calling them Mary. And one of the oddest things here is that this country of the United States, at least by those that we call the forefathers who were odd and perhaps incredibly enlightened mystics, and I know that's a very adventurous thing to say in a world where white men came and claimed the country in a very terrible way. Yeah? In my investigations, which have been ongoing for years, of the astrology, the mythology, the astronomy, the astronomical alignments, the symbolism in Washington, D.C., you start to engage, though I don't know who these people specifically were, with a consciousness that has beauty in its heart. And trying to bring that back from the stones that seem shattered from the copper that has reached this dark green patina perhaps is one of my current devotions and I look forward to sharing more and more about the Star Mysteries of Washington, D.C. If you live here in the Northwest, I'll be presenting at the Cascadia Festival in July. Star Mysteries of D.C. Mostly because that festival is held at the Freemasonic Family Campground. Which is, again, a strange thing to have a hippie festival at a Freemason zone. You know? And actually it has helped me release some pretty rigid biases that were not established through experience but rather through hearsay and I will say plenty remain so anyway that's in July the Cascadia Festival it's an amazing thing happening so if you're up here if you're not come come on out it's a very fun thing and I think I'm giving that talk at 2.30 on Saturday it's like the third weekend of July I believe And I'll be presenting that more and more online. There's plenty of places you can go. Um, for you astrologers out there, David Ovison's The Secret Architecture of Our Nation's Capital is a fascinating study. Highly recommended. My investigation in many senses started there, but it's gone into very new and interesting places thanks to other folks like William Henry and Scott Onstott and 
Nicholas Mann and Robert Bavall and Graham Hancock and my own personal experience witnessing, dreaming into it. It is odd and wild, but one thing that's important to say, I guess, just in this thread, is that this country, in so many ways, in its symbolism, was clearly devoted to the mother of heaven, the goddess Isis, and to the virgin. There's a reason why D.C. is embraced by Virginia, Maryland, Virgin Mary. There's a reason why Annapolis, the city of Anna, is the capital of Maryland. Anna was Mary's mother, you know. And the Virgin Mary, mythologically speaking, is Isis. And Pallas Athena comes into the mix too, and we'll see her as we move along in this prophecy of Prometheus. So I'm getting behind myself and ahead of myself simultaneously. True to my moniker. So let's talk astrology, and we'll wrap this first episode up. And we'll start by returning to this first chapter of the story, which ended with Zeus's overthrow, with the help of his brothers and those that would become the Olympians, and with the help of some titans specifically, most importantly perhaps, Prometheus, who crossed sides, having foreseen that the Olympians would win. And we'll be speaking again and again about Prometheus. Oftentimes it would seem that the planet Uranus is cast in his role. Jupiter becomes king of kings, as was prophesied that a son would take Saturn's kingdom. And as a gift to the goat whose milk he was fed as a baby in hiding. He cast that goat into the sky, Amalthea, as the constellation we call Capricornus. So Capricornus, I say, is not the sea goat, but the she-goat. Now, the sea-goat itself, the goat-fish, has much historical implication, much symbolic truth, much beauty, but the she-goat is something I am very firmly a believer in. And I'm not afraid to do both. Some will say Amalthea is actually of a star, of a group of goats that are held in the chariot, the charioteer, Ariga, which hosts the bright star Capella. Some say that star itself actually is Amalthea. But many will say that Amalthea, the goat whose milk fed baby Zeus, is this constellation we call Capricornus. And if indeed it is the she-goat, and not the sea goat, what the heck happened for it to become this strange character 
of a goat with a fish's tail that can't climb or swim. Hopefully it can fly or Jesus, what's going on with that thing? And there's a talk you can find on my website or YouTube channel if you'd like more than astrology.com or I think my YouTube's probably Gemini Brett called What the Hell is a Seagoat? Where I kind of go deep into this. And you can see some pictures that tell a thousand words and give a hundred dates and such. Because it's actually the first question I think I asked myself mythologically, <laughs> what the hell is a seagoat? At least astrologically, symbolically, that brought me to the myth. That's a great window to learning more about this art. And in this talk, I speak about how the virgin has been de-virginized about how the cow, which should be Taurus, as an earth, a feminine, a yin, a chalice sign, has been testiculized into this bull and how that is bullshit. And what the heck has happened to this goat that was adhered to some fish's tail, we're told it's because Pan jumped into the waters running in fear from the attack of Titus. Amalthea. And Daniel Jamario and Kaylin Costello of the Shamanic Astrology Mystery School have brought forth this beautiful archetype of feminine Capricorn that helps us envision perhaps a more organic state for this earth sign other than what so many books describe as police state and government they bring forth the Council of Grandmothers as the great archetype of Capricorn. And I've heard Daniel speak about, as I have since, that the Articles of Confederation around which the Constitution finally formed were first based on Iroquois government, the Iroquois who had these powerful men, these chiefs, these warriors, these shaman medicine men. But that no important decision went through without the approval of the Council of Grandmothers. And so many of these elements were taken into this experiment in democracy really as a republic as it was initially. From the wisdom of the true nations of this land who unfortunately have, just like the Council of Grandmothers, been all but eradicated. And so that wisdom is missing. Just because these guys were wearing a bunch of wigs during the signings of these strange papers doesn't mean that the ladies were there to give their counsel to bring their wisdom. I've heard it said by friends who went down to South America at length to connect to some traditions there, the older women say, what the hell's wrong with your women? And they said, wait, what? She said, yeah, 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 women are the ones that tell the men to stop. If we need to build some houses, we need some wood, so you tell the men to go cut down the trees. And then you tell them when to stop. Because if you don't, they will cut them all down. 
we need some machines to help us out and to take care of the population. So go make some machines and now stop because, oh my God, we're not even people anymore. What's wrong with your women? Now that's a challenging, very challenging statement, obviously. But an interesting one, are we willing to go there? Instead of just pointing the finger at patriarchy? And when we point the finger at patriarchy, should we only point the finger at some penis? At that 555-foot phallus of the Washington Monument is one of millions of examples. Is the patriarchy masculine? And so my investigations and contemplations and experiences have opened up since I first recorded this What the Hell is a Seagoat talk, which is a very pointing the finger at the pointless penis that has ruined things through this nightmare of patriarchy. And my contemplations, I sure pray, will take me into further and further overstanding of this great mystery during the course of my life, perhaps many if that's the way it is. I love what I have learned but choose to ever remind myself that I do not know. There's crows up here sounding like monkeys right now. (laughs) I didn't know that was possible. Some time ago. All right, so the Council of Grandmothers, where have they gone? How do we bring that back and what do they represent? Is this not the wisdom of the earth itself? Now Capricorn, as an example, is a time where it gets pretty dang cold out when we're looking from the northern hemisphere seasonal perspective, as I like to do to engage intuitively and personally with the archetypes of the zodiac. I mean, it is cold. You better have chosen the right cave to survive in. You better have canned the green beans and the kale some time ago. Or whatever it is you can. (laughs) Because you're going to have to make it through. You're going to have to ration that food. And what if somebody steals? Then don't you have to be the police state? What if you have to kick them out of the cave and this means their death? Certainly. What if there's the unspeakable crimes within the survival cave? Murder, rape what is done so government and police state perhaps yes but if it's done so in a wise way and perhaps in group council and perhaps according to the true traditions of earth that will preserve and persevere for the seven future generations perhaps there's no need to lay down the law because people in tune to the earth which is their body which is their Lineage in their ancestry as well. Know how to keep it cool in the cold. Is that bit missing? And is that bit coming back strongly to us now because of Pluto and Capricorn?
Pluto was in Capricorn in 1776 when the United States first formed. Or at least, we should say, when the words of war and revolution were spoken in the Declaration of Independence, often seen as the birth time for the United States. But Pluto had not yet been discovered. That came in 1930, Great Depression and such, 10 years before the discovery of plutonium. When Pluto was discovered in 1930, it was in the sign of cancer. Right at one of its nodes, one of the places where Pluto crosses the ecliptic, which is more significant for Pluto than the other planets because its strange orbit is so tilted to the plane of the ecliptic, to the, the plane that most of the planets of our solar system dance within. This is one of the reasons why Pluto has become a dwarf planet in the eyes of so many. And Pluto, who often enjoys being hidden, mythologically he was forced to wear a helmet of invisibility when he came here, probably doesn't mind so much being called a dwarf planet. Perhaps this helps him hide. So it's something significant to me that when Pluto was discovered, it was at one of its nodes. If you want to know more about that, first of all, in this last episode, The Pillars of the Truth, I spoke a bunch about the nodes of the moon and latitude of planets, which unfortunately does not show up on the chart unless you know how to look. But one great way that you can see latitude is take yourself to solarsystemscope.com and have a look at what Pluto does over time. You will see when Pluto is crossing the plane of the ecliptic, and that's happening in a theater called you very soon, around 2018, 2019. And it hasn't happened since Pluto was at the other side of its dance with the ecliptic plane when Pluto was discovered in 1930. Pluto can get way out there. When I was born, Pluto was in Libra at its northern bend, the place where it's furthest above the ecliptic, way out there in space. Pluto was strongly aligned to the bright star Vindimatrix of the constellation, the Virgin, when I was born, which is way above the path of the sun, way above the ecliptic. And now it's coming down. It's coming. You see what I'm saying? It's coming down from like out, way out there and coming down to earth and we are feeling it for Pluto is the shamanic shakeup. Evolution and often really in a rather Darwinistic way, but the more we choose change, the less change chooses us through this cosmic kick to the teeth and instead can empower us to willfully engage with the transformations we seek in the worlds within and without. And this is what I'm talking about. Pluto first entered Capricorn in January of 2008. January 25th, 2008. Went retrograde, left Capricorn back into Sagittarius on June 13th. 
and came back in on November 28th, 2008, and will remain in Capricorn until March of 2023, when it finds its way along the course into Aquarius. And will dip back in once in 2023 and once in 2024. But basically, we could say then 2008 to 2024 is this time of Pluto slow dance through Capricorn. Pluto will find its way to the plane of the ecliptic, crossing its south node, 2018 to 2019. Pluto will conjunct the United States Pluto, where Pluto was born in 1776 in 2022. What does this all mean? What does Pluto and Capricorn mean? Pluto, which brings evolution. Capricorn, often known as structure. We hear about this structure of government and police. Well, I like to see Capricorn, the true feminine, organic Capricorn, as the trunk of the tree. And I say that with my hand on a beautiful cedar here in Lincoln Park. The trunk and its roots. The ancestry, the lineage, the voice of Gaia that holds it together. And one thing I often like to share is some extreme expression of something Jung once said. I can't remember his words, but my twisting of them is the tree will not grow to the heavens until its roots have tasted the waters of hell. When Pluto entered Capricorn in 2008, global financial crisis, how much has our world changed since then? Did we awaken from a dream and have we chosen to go back to sleep to something that is very still strongly happened? And what is this revolution that we are seeing so present in the one who unfortunately will, will not be chosen or selected as president? but the return of the youth to this political movement. Very interesting, that. And what we see is that a vast majority now understands the nature of this corruption. Someone wrote about this in something I read yesterday. Now we know. Not only now we know, they know we know. And they know we know they know we know. <laughs> but hey, we is them. Salve et coagula separate and bring back together. We'll be speaking about that much more as we go along. So global financial crisis and for when the matter becomes black and rejoice for now you are on your path to purity. This debt-based fiat currency that has been part of the great prison is not true Capricorn. It is not organic. It has no real structure. It is not rooted in the real tradition of currency. Perhaps something that is a unit of exchange has been around forever, but has it always had debt attached to it? And I'll probably at some point during the course of this thing go on my 
favorite rant right now, which is the ridiculousness of the number zero. Uh, for another time, because clearly we're coming to a close. Pluto and Capricorn perhaps is a promise of the entire shamanic shakeup to all structures that do not serve an organic way of being. Perhaps it is this call for us to be on the island and not on the ferry that goes to it. <laughs> perhaps it is this call to turn our back on technology before it takes our world and return to our primitive state as organic jungle beings. And perhaps that is now impossible. And perhaps that's not what we came here to be. Perhaps the Uranus side of this conversation called the prophecy of Prometheus asks us to consciously address a mature relationship and stewardship of the technology that we create just as it was Prometheus who created us as we will see. Where is Amalthea? Is she returning? We have these 13 grandmothers cruising around reminding us to return to the old ways. Mm. I just covered myself in Doug fur sap <laughs> and it smells wonderful. Can we just be sticky beings again? In Capricorn wisdom, grandmother wisdom does not have to be harsh. A story I love to share that was shared with me is one of these 13 grandmothers, Agnes, was at the Beloved Festival in Oregon some summers ago, conducting a water blessing and saying, I hear all of you speak about your love for the earth and your devotion to her perseverance, and I love this, her preservation, and I love this. And I look out here during this water blessing, and I see all of these plastic cups that are made of oil. What, you didn't know you were going to drink today? I thought maybe I'd have some water. This is a water blessing. Maybe I'd try some of this great tea that's around this festival. Thanks to people like Poe and Omar and Ron John. So I brought this silver goblet. It's my cup. You know, think before you drink. It doesn't have to be so harsh. It doesn't have to be some kick to the teeth almost fortune cookie-like wisdom from the experienced grandmother, grandfather. Why can't this be a trunk of a tree rather than some prison state police authority that Pluto's dance through this sign from 2008 to 2024 promise promises to return to us at his south node in 2018-2019, perhaps making us look at the past in difficult ways, perhaps bringing back some of the ways of old. And clearly, 
I should probably say everyone hearing this now is engaged with that. There's a symbol, the Sabian symbol, I believe for the 14th degree of Capricorn, which reads, a bas-relief carved in granite remains a symbol of an ancient culture. Enough said. And think about how much, much just mysterious evidence from those old cultures are coming back to us. Do you know that giants lived here in America? And it was well known and not suppressed until like Abraham Lincoln's time. You can find Abe Lincoln talking about giants. <laughs> now you can laugh at that if you want. Or you can go do a little research and you will be shocked. Why don't we know about the truth? Pluto through Capricorn perhaps is a promise of the entire shakeup of all false structure so that true organic structure again can support us, can give us the place to branch and to grow into the heavens as the trunk of a tree does. Perhaps Pluto in Capricorn, especially perhaps once it dives beneath the ecliptic, we could think about this rooting into the soil, will give us a chance to drink from those pristine waters. These waters, this art of the heart, this kind of scorpionic nature, which unfortunately has been so suppressed because we've been taught it was naughty telling us, no, don't do that, instead of yes, but like this. When we suppress our heart, we serve it to control us. When we express, we can control it to serve us. And I believe Saturn's dance through Scorpio in the 2012 to 2015 window, making a sextile to Pluto in Capricorn from modern astrological terms in mutual reception was much of this challenge that would take us to drink from deep dark waters for which we have always feared. Have we done that? Yes. Have we done it enough? Perhaps not because perhaps if we did, perhaps if we really brought that shadow out, perhaps things like last weekend's terrible terrorism would not need to reflect this inner terrorism, this inner chaos, and that's what I'm talking about with this. And this is what I'm saying is illumination. Illumination is like the Care Bear Parade coming to bring us all heady, vegan, organic marshmallow s'mores. <laughs> Riding rainbow unicorns into the pearly gates of ascension? Perhaps in your reality, I don't think that's going to be mine this way, and maybe that's a bad choice I've made. But for me, when the spotlight turns on, we see some stuff in the corner we didn't know was there before when we weren't brave enough to look or didn't have the light that was required to do so. And just as it is, when we go into the dark, Sometimes we see the light that we couldn't see before. 
This is what I'm talking about with illumination. Are these difficult experiences in our personal lives? Are these awful happenings in our global lives? Forcing us to sleep to stay attached to some false dream so we don't have to see some nightmare? Or are they the awakening? Is it that nightmare that will set us free from a false dream so that we can bring the true vision to form? For while attachment to the dream might be the mother of delusion, certainly dreaming is the answer. And as we see Prometheus, as Uranus come into the story, as I move forward in these chapters and we speak about the times of the Uranus-Pluto square, which is in some senses still alive for sure. And look at that as a sprouting of seeds planted in the mid-1960s. We will have an opportunity to engage with the warrior and with rage and with rebellion and with Occupy and with Fukushima and with revolution and as we take this further and speak to Chiron and to Themis we will soften into empathy into liberty but that softness it would seem in the earth game is not often awarded to those who have not chosen to awaken from a false dream and unfortunately when we do we are asked to examine some very harsh truths and now as we do we can very gradually soften into an experience of that darkness also as an essence of the light itself. And that perhaps requires more courage than looking into the darkness in the first place. Space ain't necessarily a warm, bright place, but there sure is a lot of twinkle. I look forward to returning to this story, the prophecy of Prometheus. I thank you for your attention. In your patience, I have no long idea how long this thing is, but I know it's not short. And hopefully, I can thank you also for challenging yourself in any way encouraged by this strange walk through the park together today. And I would encourage you to challenge me and to challenge others. But hopefully, gracefully, 
Because as I have come to say, and we will hear it more than once during the course of this starry story, the true role of the warrior is not to shake the sleeper awake, but to keep the fire warm so that they can rest, awaken when they are ready with the dream intact that will set us free. We are the dreamer. We are the awakening one. We are the warrior. And eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. And the true Mars knows on his day of Tuesday that vigilance does not mean war. So I better hit stop before his retrograde Scorpio rises behind these rain clouds so I can sit and listen. For it's so much more profound than speaking. This is your friendly astronaut, Gemini Brett, signing off from the woods of Lincoln Park. Thank you for listening. I will see you in space. An hour and a half. Dang.